Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Percet. We're excited that you're tuned back in. Today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Timothy McGrew, professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Western Michigan University. He's also a world-renowned Christian apologist. We're going to be talking to him today about reasons for believing in God. Dr. McGrew, thanks so much for coming on the show. You bet. Glad to be here. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Well, thanks so much for having me on. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, the story of my coming to faith is really a very simple one. I was about four and a half years old, and I was raised in a wonderful Christian home with loving parents. My father was a Bible college professor, and I knew that God was good, that I was bad, and that Jesus had bridged that gap for me. And I didn't have a very sophisticated theology, but that was that was good enough. And uh, so that's the that's how I came to faith. Um, not the same question as why I am now a Christian. That's more involved and, and complicated and interesting, but it was really a matter of simple upbringing by good, loving Christian parents for me. Awesome. Why don't you elaborate on that second part of the question? Well, many people who are raised as Christians come to a point in their lives when they realize, you know, I'm not really sure why I believe some or most or all of this stuff, because there are a lot of contentful claims that Christians make. There are a lot of claims they make that really are the sort of things for which we would normally request evidence. If somebody else said these things to you about his beliefs, you would want to know why he thought you should accept them. So I went through a period of time in high school and early college when uh, I really had a lot of questions about my faith. It was not a rebellious phase of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was just a more like a staying up late in the library on Friday nights up to my elbows in books. Uh, but that was a period of intense study for me, and that is where I discovered the field of apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. And that really helped me to put down my anchor and to know not only what I believed, but why I believed it. So which arguments, or what did you read that was the most convincing? Was there any that stuck out to you? A couple of things really struck me early on. One uh, was the historical work of John Warwick Montgomery. He's a, a Lutheran theologian and historian who made a powerful historical argument for the historic truth of Christianity. Montgomery's work really had a big impact on me at a very important time in the formation of my own ideas, and I am eternally grateful for that. The other thing was an encounter with philosophical arguments and their intersection with history in a debate. I believe it might have been one of Gary Habermas's debates with Antony Flew. And that made me realize that philosophers were talking about these issues, and in order to be able to engage with them at a deep level, I was going to have to study philosophy. So I 
packed up and went off to the local Jesuit university to study philosophy, much to the distress of some of the people around me who said I could get really messed up studying philosophy, but there it was. And so it was it, as a result of encountering some of the work of Montgomery and of Habermas that I really came to understand some of the historical grounds for the Christian faith. Awesome. Now, on that, on that note about philosophy, when I got to college, I had struggled with some doubt. I grew up in a Christian family as well. I'd encountered a few mm-hmm. apologetical resources, similar story. And when I got to college, uh, I did my bachelor's d- degree in chemistry, but I almost had a second degree in philosophy because I was so drawn to it. I just mm-hmm. I was mesmerized by philosophy and, uh, and I encountered similar, uh, you know, questions from friends that worried about me. Anyway, with all that being said, from a Christian perspective, why is philosophy important? Wow. So um, let's back up a little bit and talk about the common perception of philosophy, which is it's the most dangerous thing you can possibly study. Keep your kids (laughs) away from it. They'll lose their faith and they'll come back aggressive and full of questions and it'll be a disaster. That's a story that does sometimes get played out. And so I, I don't want to downplay it too much. Encountering philosophy or any discipline that engages with these historical issues, say comparative religion, without a firm foundation can be a disorienting experience. And I think that we send people off pretty lightly to study these things, and that as the church, we don't perhaps take enough cognizance of what it takes to lay a firm foundation. So that being said, philosophy is not a monster. Uh, Some philosophers are aggressive atheists. Others are very genial and and live-and-let-live kind of people. Some of them are wonderful Christians. The, um, The problem is not the discipline. Philosophy is a set of questions and techniques, problems and techniques. And those can be helpful or harmful just like so many other things. A tool can be helpful or harmful. Medicine can be helpful or harmful. Um, It all depends on whether it's the right thing for the job and how it's being applied. And so I think the very important thing that I would say to someone who's going off to study philosophy is make sure you know where you stand first. Um, I did, though, in hindsight, I could have done an even better job of getting my feet under me if I had had the right resources, if I'd known where to find them. But we should encourage people to study all good fields, philosophy included. And we need some philosophers because some of those tools that you develop in philosophy can actually be used in important ways for the defense of the Christian faith and not just for attacks on all religion. Right, right. Dr. McGrew, I've I've also heard that Christians are kind of taking back philosophy departments in the last decade or two. Is that is that true to, from your from your view? Hmm, I don't know if I would say taking back departments, although there are some historically Christian schools where there's a strong Christian representation on the faculty. I I think of uh Baylor as one example where they've got just some absolutely first-rate Christian faculty. Uh, I think of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where they actually have quite a number of really fine young philosophers employed, and they're doing a very good job with what they have there. So there are, sure, there are some some terrific 
schools. As far as taking back the departments at secular universities, there are some places where there are multiple Christians, but in most cases, we're kind of scattered. What I would say is the difference between that and the 1960s, where it was difficult in most places to find a Christian in a philosophy department at all. Mm. Now, uh, probably across half or more of the philosophy departments that I'm familiar with, there's at least one Christian there either on faculty or maybe doing a graduate degree in the department. So there's more Christian representation. It's still not, I think, what it ought to be, but there's been definite steps in the right direction. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I'm, I'm from Northern California. I grew up in the bastion of conservatism by Berkeley, San Francisco, and mm. Santa Cruz. <laughs> and so I, I'm a, I was a, as a teenager, I mean, I breathed in, I was an atheist for a while. I breathed in Eastern mysticism, New Age, all of that. And... You've got to be careful what you're breathing in when you're walking around <laughs> Exactly, yeah. The, the carbon monoxide was especially toxic. Um, and so all that to say is that, you know, I was just, what the Bible calls lost, and I actually became a Christian reading Edgar Casey, who is not a Christian. And no. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and accepted Christ, and then very slowly developed a Christian worldview. And I just finished an MA in Christian apologetics at Biola recently. Sure. Um, but when Another I went... really wonderful program. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I, I guess my question to you is, where I'm going with this, is are faith and reason contradictory? That's the question I get from a lot of secular people. Are faith and reason contradictory? How do you answer that as they're doing the investigation of Christianity? Well, funny you should ask, because I just contributed to a book called Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy, uh, put out by Zondervan, edited by Paul Gould and Rich Davis, and I represented the position that they are actually convergent, that Christianity completes philosophy and philosophy confirms Christianity. So I wouldn't say that at all. I would certainly would not say that they need to be contradictory in any way. Faith really, at its root, simply means trust. That's the root meaning of the word that is translated faith in the New Testament, pistis. And so the question is trust in what and why? So it's certainly possible to have blind faith. That's why we use the adjective applying to it, qualifying, modifying the word faith. Uh, but there's nothing about faith that has to be blind. It's possible to place your trust wrongly. We all have had occasions where we've trusted someone and they've let us down. And that, that's just very rocking personally to have somebody let you down. But faith doesn't have to be placed in something that will let you down. So if we keep hold of the idea that faith is trust, and we ask ourselves, all right, trust in what, for what purpose, um, and on what basis, then we can start to sort out the different kinds of faith, faith that is well-placed, faith that is well-placed with good reasons, faith that is placed in the wrong thing, faith that is placed in the right thing for the wrong reasons. And that helps us. God doesn't, of course, sort us out on some kind of grid of how high our grades are in epistemology before he accepts us. Jesus doesn't have any qualifiers like that for those who come to him. But it's still not a good idea to have no idea why you believe the things that you believe. Then you are a sitting duck. 
All right, so different philosophers like Plantinga and Descartes might say that believing in God is is uh, properly basic or just uh, something that is to be expected. Maybe I'm um, oversimplifying their arguments, but I, I want to ask you, uh, why can we be confident that God exists? Well, I would say there are, very broadly speaking, two major ways to do it. The first is to look at the universe at a level that anyone can look at it. And I think this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. I think it's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 19. The universe, the physical world at all levels of scale, from microbiology to cosmology, bears the fingerprints of the Creator. Now, we can break that down into a bunch of sub-arguments, but right now I just want to highlight the general category. There are arguments from nature to God. Nature provides us with evidence for the existence and for some of the attributes of God. And so that whole enterprise called natural theology is one of the ways that we can gain confidence that there is a God. The other way is that God has revealed himself to us most directly in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have historical records. God entered human history. Uh, He'd been doing that from the beginning of the Old Testament. You'll remember not only in the creation of the world when the world was nothing, but also in his revelations to the prophets and the promise of the coming of the Messiah. Christianity is the capstone in that, and the New Testament shows us that final, ultimate, perfect revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm, Makes perfect sense, but at this time, I love your response and how you respond to the hiddenness of God challenge. Could you articulate that now? Right, so some people have tried to say that we can't really be all that confident that there's a God, because when we look around, we don't see him. Uh, He's hiding. This is the problem of divine hiddenness. Why isn't God's existence more obvious? If it's so important for us to know, then why isn't he knocking on every door? Why isn't he writing our names in the sky and letting go with a booming voice that says, I am real, believe in me? Um, I don't think God's actually all that hidden. I don't think that the only choices are that he's like some kind of ninja you can never see, or that he's obvious and in front of your face in the way that your boss can be at work. There's a a third thing, which is there's plenty of evidence, but you have to open your eyes and look at it. And the people who realize that this matters and who care will look for the evidence, and if they look for it, they will find it. Those who are of a contrary disposition, as Pascal once said, the great French polymath Blaise Pascal, he said, well, you know, there's enough light for those who wish to see, and there's enough darkness for those who don't. Nice, nice. So do you think a good analogy would be, you know, some people have a, a paycheck that is adequate, but of course I would like $10 million more, but the evidence we have is adequate to discover God? I would say that's that's a reasonable analogy. Here's another way to put it. Any amount of empirical or historical evidence could always be greater. No matter how much of it you name, I can always say, well, but we could have more. And although it's true that we could have more, that response tends to lose its interest once you realize that the important question isn't, could I have more? Sure you could. 
could I have more evidence that Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address? Sure, I could. But is the evidence that I have enough? If it's enough, then for me to complain that I don't have more is for me to be childish, much like the person whose paycheck is fully adequate to meet his needs, but he complains because he's not getting a million dollars. Well, too bad. Grow up. If it's adequate, it's adequate. And so I think that it's a a very – I'll borrow the words of William Paley, the great 18th and very early 19th century philosopher and apologist. He said that it's a very unphilosophical manner of proceeding to demand more evidence or to complain of not having more when what you have is perfectly good. Dr. McGrew, you have just helped me with parenting my children. So when they ask about their allowance, I'll say it's adequate. It could always be more. <laughs> <laughs> it could always be more. Right. You know, well, some, somebody once asked Donald Trump, how much is enough? This was long before his presidential run, but they were just talking about money. How much is enough? And Trump responded, just a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what I heard that I turned to the person I was with and I said, I'm richer than Donald Trump. Oh, wow. I have enough. Yeah. And he never will. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can go to godsolutionshow.com for more about The God Solution. So it's like saying the Higgs boson is difficult to detect, therefore it must not exist, or gravitational waves are difficult to measure, therefore they must not exist, or subatomic particles, we can't see them with our eyes, therefore they must not exist. It it seems like this kind of argument, or maybe uh, is it Victor Stenger's argument from Empty Space, these arguments I think are very weak arguments for God's non-existence. I agree. I sometimes like to point to the example of black holes. By definition, you can't see them. Light doesn't bounce off of them and, and reach our eyes. So how is it that there's this thing I can't see, and yet I'm quite sure of its existence? Well, it's because of the things that I can see. When we point telescopes down toward the heart of our galaxy and we see clusters of stars moving in very tight orbits very quickly, we know there must be something massive they're orbiting around, even though we can't see it. Uh, When you look out the window and you see the branches of a tree swaying, you know there's a breeze out there. You can't see the breeze, but you see certain things, and their behavior is best explained by the existence of what you can't see. So it's really not a matter of things we can see versus things we can't. It's a matter of making the kind of inference to the best explanation that we do unhesitatingly in everyday life. So let's get back to natural theology and the design argument a bit. I talked about the design argument last week on the show, and I think it's powerful, and I think it also has intuitive appeal, like Dr. Craig says. Uh, What do the unfathomable statistics encountered when considering the design of the universe tell us about a designer? Well, this is really interesting because there are many design arguments. The design argument is kind of a a home, like a hangar where we park several aircraft. (laughs) Uh, it, It covers many different things. I am incredibly impressed with the argument from the origin of life. Mm-hmm. And the numbers are truly staggering. Um, just to get one small protein, say, with 100 bonds between the proteins, um, for all those bonds to be the right kind, and they've got to be peptide bonds, 
the probability is about one chance in 10 to the 30th. And that's just to get a protein. That's not something living. You need the right proteins in the right order. You need to make sure they're not oxidizing before they get put together in these complex nanoscale machines. Uh, you know, just at a certain point, your mind boggles and you say, oh my gosh, no, that didn't just happen. And, and if, you, if you say, well, but if we could, you know, we, we've found sugars in intergalactic space, which we can tell by looking at spectra. Let's suppose that we have. Um, I can take a living cell like a single cell, and I can puncture it with a sterile needle and let its contents soak out of it into a sterile solution. So everything you need for a living cell is right there, and it will never come back together. And that's when you have all the pieces there. So the, the probabilities are just so staggering, but we see human beings exercise intelligence in putting together complicated things that function for certain purposes, and intelligence is really the only known cause of this. We have no observation of anything on this order of complexity and specificity being put together by anything other than intelligence. We're even working, we have teams of people working, trying to create artificial life in the laboratory. And these are talented people with millions of dollars of equipment at their disposal, and it's not happening. I'm not saying it absolutely couldn't happen. All the raw materials are there, but it's hard. And uh, just saying, oh, well, you know, lots of time and chance, that'll do the job, that seems to me to be a very superficial response to a very difficult problem. Or as Dawkins would say, through a stroke of luck, <laughs> right? As if, as if that's an, a scientific explanation. Yeah, so the next time we're playing poker and I wind up with four aces and a king, I'm going to tell Dawkins, you know, it's just such a stroke of luck. What are you looking at me for? <laughs> yes, this is the third time in a row this evening that I've had four aces and a king, but, you know, I had to have some cards or other, right. so what's your problem? So a lot of these atheists and skeptics would appeal to a multiverse theory, which I think gets them in more trouble than where they're already at, because, of course, uh, Geisler and Turk in uh, their book mentioned how if the multiverse does exist and you can't disprove God in a in a other universe that you can't even access, then, of course, uh, then then God could exist in any universe, and including this one. I think it gets them into a bigger problem, but without evidence for a multiverse, they appeal to this just to get out of statistics. Is that right? Yeah. Actually, there was a, uh, a, a book published not too long ago by Eugene Koonin um, exploring the question of the origin of life, and Koonin takes a good hard look at the improbabilities. He doesn't want to admit any kind of designer, not interested in that at all. And then he just says, well, we need a multiverse because we need, you know, 10 to the 10 to the 100 something if other places for us to be trying this, like shuffling a whole bunch of decks of cards in a whole bunch of different places in order to have that shuffle come out just right so everything's in order from ace to king, suit by suit, you know. Uh, well, golly, th that sounds an awful lot like 
invoking the tooth fairy to save your naturalism. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and, and people get upset with, well, you're just invoking this to save your theism. Hey, two can play at that game. When you have something that is really so little evidenced, and I know there are all kinds of people making confident pronouncements about multiverses, but when you're talking about something that is, by definition, completely causally isolated from us, so that nothing that happens in some other little you universe can affect us, and nothing that we do can affect that little you universe, then we are way out in the realm of conjecture. And, and at some points I want to say to people like that, and you have a problem with the doctrine of the Trinity? Right. And have you looked at modern science lately? <laughs> and I think, I think at the end of the day, we're positing something that's metaphysically necessary, a first self-existent cause. They're positing something that's not metaphysically necessary whatsoever. There's certainly a big... Uh, kind of question mark hanging over it in the form of a Leibnizian argument from contingency. You're, you're supposing something else there to do your job for you. Okay, where'd that come from? Okay, Is it just really self-explanatory? Well, no, maybe not. So what do you think, just brief answer, what do you think of Dembski's concept of a universal probability bound? So, actually, I have some formal technical differences with Dembski regarding the right way to run arguments of that kind. Mm -hmm. And I've written about that. And I know Bill. He's a great guy, friend of mine. He's a smart guy. Um, so you can, you can read what I've written. You can read what he's written. You can take your pick. The interesting thing is I come to some of the same conclusions that he does just by a different road. Mm -hmm. So my differences with him are not so much on where he ends up as how he gets there. Um, I don't I don't use the university, universal probability bound arguments, um, but you can make a good comparative argument actually and get there when you say, okay, how likely is this if there's not a designer? How mm -hmm. likely is this if there is a designer? And we can get some estimates on that working even from things that lie within our experience. Um, that's, that's the way that we do a whole lot of inferences in science, and there's no reason we shouldn't be able to do it here. Mm. Dr. McGrew, do you think that people are admitting um, design more and more. I'm thinking of, of a quote, I'm just going from memory here, from the blind watchmaker from Dawkins, and he basically says, biology is the study of complex things that look designed for a purpose. You know, I saw the movie Expelled, where Richard Dawkins seems to admit that things look designed, but it's not by God, not by God, it's by aliens who came about by purely Darwinian naturalists. Uh, methods. And so I'm looking at, at modern movies like, I don't know if you've ever seen Knowing with Nicolas Cage, and I'm hearing that this new um, Prometheus Alien series is all about, you know, how we were basically created by aliens. So is that just a way of saying that people are really starting to see design? Well, that's a tough question, and in some sense I want to say it's off my pay scale. Uh, in fairness, I, I think Dawkins would say he's not advocating design by aliens. Sure, sure. All that he's saying is if you had to invoke design, mm. he'd rather that you invoke aliens than an immaterial, all-powerful creator. What all of this does point to is something that maybe we can all agree on, which is the very first look, the intuitive glance has a lot of psychological pull. Right. You, you look at these things and you say, okay, that's not here by chance. And then somebody comes along and tries to say, well, yes, it could be. Here's how. 
And we look through it, and we, we try to see it, and some people are persuaded, some people are not. But the first glance, the intuitive appeal is very strong. Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, said this. He said, you know, the, the starry heavens above give us a very powerful, intuitive pull to say, oh, there must be a designer. I definitely hear what you're saying. You, their opinions probably, if I was backed in a corner, I would go with the aliens before one powerful right. god. I, I do always love to hear that, because I, I think that anytime somebody says, I would say aliens before I would say god, <laughs> the common man kind of raises an eyebrow and says, really? You know, even if he's not persuaded of the existence of god, I think that kind of resistance to the existence of god speaks volumes. Well, that concludes the first part of our interview with Dr. Timothy McGrew. Tune back in next week for the second part of the interview, where we will discuss more about reasons to believe in the New Testament, specifically talking about undesigned coincidences. Well, if you've never made the decision to believe in Jesus Christ, the evidence is compelling. Why not put your faith in him today? You could express that through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Thank you for coming into my life, for being my Savior and my Lord. I hope you enjoyed this uh, first part of the interview. Again, tune back in next week for the second part of the interview. You can find out more about Dr. Timothy McGrew at historicalapologetics.org, or you could go to Christian Apologetics Alliance on Facebook. I would also encourage you to pick up his book, Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy, and his wife's book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. Well, go to GodSolutionShow.com for this show and all of our past shows, and tune back in next week. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.